Hi, everybody who will listen to this on Future Primitive. This is Joanna Harcourt-Smith, and uh, I'm on the phone today with Carolyn Garcia, who has been known throughout her life as Mountain Girl. She was a merry prankster. Uh, she knew Ken Kesey really, really well and had a child with him, a daughter, and uh, she was also the wife of Jerry Garcia. She grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York, and uh, she met Neil Cassidy in 1964, who introduced her to Kesey and to his friends, one of whom uh, gave her the name Mountain Girl. So this is a Carolyn's life in my in my view is a historical folkloric life that belongs in the history of our lives. So I met her in Basel at the World Psychedelic Forum and uh, I was really touched by the beauty of her face and the openness of her heart. So, uh, Carolyn, would you tell us what you're doing today and what your life is about today? Well, I think, you know, I just, I just turned 62. And, um, you know, to my complete surprise, it's, it's, a, uh, it's an opportunity to sort of review what I've been doing is the 60s all over again. You know, now I get to do the 60s again. I'll be 63 and 64. <laughs> but um, uh, mostly uh, what I do is um, uh, live in my, what I will call my electronic cottage out in the country in, in Oregon. Um, I'm really not more than about half an hour out of town but the great communicatory grid has not reached me, so I am forced to use a satellite dish for my Internet access. Yes. And um, this, is, this has led to me rekindling my interest in technology and space, really. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my current passions, I have many current passions, and I'll, I'll detail them for you, but... Great. What I'm excited about right now is uh, satellite photographs. I think that by downloading satellite photographs and looking at them several times a day, you get a you suddenly begin to realize the Earth has this ever changing quality called weather that, when viewed from space from these satellite images that are readily available and change every every hour or half hour. Mm-hmm. We get an overview of what what our home really looks like from from the rest of the neighborhood. So this is this has been a very exciting thing and I am now printing these things out and saving them and I've got quite a stack. They're beautiful. Oh uh, this one of my most recent passages is, is, is passions is this view from outer space that we now have. Um, Fascinating. It's like a meditation yes. on, on where we are in, in our, our planetary existence. You know, this is our, our 
terra firma, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. the world beneath our feet that we know so little about because our perspective is like that of an ant. You know, we're we're so small. Exactly. In the great scheme. Yes. Um, And, okay, so that's that piece. Yes. I also garden quite a bit. I grow a lot of my own food. I'm I'm passionate for organic um, living, really. Mm-hmm. I do my very best to introduce no poison um, and no, no, you know, unneeded technological chemistry mm-hmm. into anything around me. The land I'm living on was, has been farmed for probably 125 years before I got there. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the soil was dead and had, had no life in it at all. You could just, bear, grass will barely grow. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really realize this yes. until I until I spent some time there and could pick up a handful of soil and smell it, and it had no smell. That all the life in the soil had been destroyed by chemistry, chemical farming. Yeah. And when the soil has no smell, it it that means it's dead. And the the you know normally, you know, fresh fertile soil will have will be, you know, like 80% bacteria mm-hmm. by weight. And that gives it this, that rich sort of pungent odor right. of, of living things and roots. And this soil has no odor. It's just, it smells like, like nothing. Yeah, yeah. And so I've got a little job ahead of me to bring this back to life. Oh. So I'm, we're doing that. Well, so in order to facilitate this, we've bought a horse. Uh-huh. <laughs> horse and plow. Oh, horse poop is the answer. To oh, that. horse poop, exactly. Of so course. The horse, is, the horse is spreading his his, uh, his life-giving nutrients over my over my little my little finger of ground there, uh-huh. and things are re- really beginning to show a difference. Yes, yes. And uh, it's and it, it it actually looks better than it is so far. It is getting better. So the organic gardening, and I wrote a book years ago. Yes. Uh, 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 growing marijuana organically. It came out in, oh gosh, 1975 or 1976 or so. Yes. It's called the Primo Plant. It it still sells, and uh, um, it's still true. You know, you can do everything you need to do organically and use a minimal amount of energy in a very efficient system. Well, folklorically... Uh, mountain girl, you were uh, the epitome of of the Earth Mother for our generation, and um, I've read somewhere that from your parents you inherited an adoration of nature. And this is correct. My, both of my parents were uh, were natural history uh, teachers. They, my father was an entomologist, mm-hmm. a person who was involved in the study of insects, and my mother was a, was a, a pretty keen botanist and landscaper, and uh, they they led us around by the hand through the forest, you know, telling us the names of all the plants and what they were good for and everything that they knew, and uh, we didn't have television. Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't have uh, a lot of the amenities of a more well of a wealthy household. We, we were very broke, 
Mm-hmm. But uh, they they were passionate about their uh, spiritual life as well, um, and uh, founded the Unitarian Fellowship uh-huh. in Poughkeepsie. Right. Which was a you know a, a really a gathering of of the minds, and it wasn't it wasn't so much about religion as it was about ethical living. Uh-huh. And and you know, you know paying attention. So uh, they were very special people, and I was fortunate that my teenage rebellion, really, I wasn't rebelling against them or their mm-hmm. thought forms, but really only against their role as mm-hmm. parental watchdogs. That was, the, that was the part that I couldn't stand. Yes. And yes. so when I left home at 17, and I... I um, I sort of I sort of abandoned them and mm-hmm. and went to California mm-hmm. where and I started a new life at a pretty early age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been to the place where uh, I haven't been to your house, but I've been to the place where you live, and I I went there to visit Ken Kesey two or three times. Oh. So I was at Ken Kesey's house. And uh, I think that's where you live. Yes, I live a few miles away, just a very few miles away. So how, um, how is the, the legacy of your intellectual, spiritual, and physical relationship with Ken Kesey? How, how, is that, how, how has that grown into, into who you are today, Carolyn? Well, I think that my, um, currently, um, you know, Ken died in 2001. Right. And um, his wife lives at the, at the house. And, um, Faye, I think her name is Faye. Yes, Faye lives there. Yeah. And his son lives right around the corner. And, um, things are very much as they were, only a lot quieter. Mm-hmm. And um, I... I have to say that Ken had a huge influence on my life, you know, partly romantic and partly an intellectual relationship that really stimulated my interest in, in literature and writing, mm-hmm. which, you know, which I'm always, I'm always interested in um, good writing. And he was the consummate good writer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anything that he wrote was always just at the very top of his of his craft. Some of the stuff he wrote was a lot sillier than other things, but he, was just, he had a deep, serious side. And I think that what I got from him was a, was a, was a friendship that lasted our whole lives. Yeah. And, um, and, and, a, and a sort of an intellectual... Um, companionship and that we saw things very much the same way and his his writing about nature was so compelling and so exquisitely phrased you know he he did that better than just about anybody and I have met so many young people usually young men mm-hmm. who moved to Oregon because they read Ken's book and they wanted to see for themselves what this beautiful forest was all about. Yes. He wrote about so compellingly. And, um, you know, he, he had such a gift for the message. 
uh, often I, I didn't quite understand what the message was that he was trying to get a, get across because he he came he really um, was in contact with some higher level level of mind mm-hmm. that I than what I have mm-hmm. at my disposal. Mm-hmm. He could he could remember you know long series of phrases and words and concepts and hang on to them until he could get to his desk and write it all down. I mean, he, he, his, re, his ability to recall was amazing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that gave him, gave him an intellectual power mm-hmm. that, was, that was quite astonishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, his, you know, his ability to grasp long chains of thought that led to something, that led to some phenomenal conclusion right, right. Or, or possibility, right. it, it, it almost seemed magical to me because I really couldn't do that. <laughs> right, right. I have, to, I have to write stuff down to be able to recall what those brilliant flashes are. Yeah. We all have them. Yes, yes, yes. But can you recall them? That's, that's the trick. Exactly. And he mastered that and used it. And, so, and then he, he would use his circle of friends, and we were all invited over to this house. He was such a good host. Mm-hmm. We were all invited over to his house anytime, mm-hmm. and we'd go over there and hang around. And he would regale everybody with his latest series of long, complex thought forms. Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. Whatever they led to, whether it be they political or you know social commentary, or you know sometimes it was ranting and raving. But he could he would mold it and and change it. And you'd hear him give a speech a month later and. A lot of it would be in there, and stuff that he would have been working on for the last month or so would be included. And uh, so he always stayed extremely current, and it was always changing. And um, and and how is that written in into who you are today? I think it gave me confidence to go ahead and and just talk. Aha! Uh-huh. You know what I saw from him was this superb self-confidence about the importance of what it is he had to say mm-hmm. or about the necessity of saying it. Right, right. And so he never hesitated. And and from and from and also back from way back in the prices we had word games that we would play. Uh-huh. Where we would free associate and, and ramble and make up songs and you know just play usually a little bit high on whatever. Exactly. And, and record a bunch of this stuff and then loop it back over itself. And it became obvious that it, it didn't so much matter how you said something you know, what, or what logic you used. At some point, it would click into a, a, a necessary or a needed bunch of words that would, that would trigger something else. Poetry. It, it was like a poetry. Yeah. It would generate ideas on its own, that, that somehow language generates generates ideas in other people and you never know when that's going to happen and you know and people get very thoughtful when that part of their head is being stimulated Mm -hmm. and so so i learned that that uh that not only is it terribly important to 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 talk in in a in a large scale You know, don't be afraid to go to the large scale. Yeah. And also, just don't be afraid to, to say the thing that just occurs to you, that that sudden cosmic flash may be something really important to the yeah. person sitting next to you. Yeah. And, 
And I also felt that we developed a type of telepathy that I can't really explain. Uh-huh. But um, we all sort of believed that there was another level of communication, not necessarily just between us on the human level. Yes. But from another, from another plane of reality where thought could travel into a group. We seemed to have group mind going pretty well there for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And the group mind concepts that we were working on during the Olasitas days translated into the Grateful Dead and their audience as well. And um, group mind was a very much a part of that whole that whole experience with the music too. Yes, uh, um, it, I think that was the period. Um, that's a great legacy and a great treasure from that period of time uh, is the the uh, the notion of of group mind is for instance uh, Timothy Leary invented group therapy actually and very few people know that that he was uh, the first psychologist to actually get people together in a in a group to express their feelings and oh, isn't that interesting i had not realized that and definitely definitely and how like tim to to come up with that and um because he must have discovered that early on that there was there were all these other subtle ways that we communicate with each other and find common ground exactly how important that is exactly Tell me, Carolyn, um, how uh, did you experience that uh, with music? Like, you, you've had a deep, passionate relationship, I'm sure, with the music of your husband, Jerry Garcia. How did that group mind and that, uh, that sense of community feel to you through the music? In, well, there were several different sort of locations for this to happen. And, and uh, firstly, I would say the, the the group mind was palpably um, being used by the by the musicians themselves mm-hmm. between themselves as they composed, mm-hmm. as they worked together to to create the music, and, and when they actually went out and and played the songs and then broke into a improvisational period, you know, in the music. Yes, I know. And during these improvisations, now some of it was pre-planned. I, I have to admit that they would say, okay, we're going to try to do this in a certain key today. Mm-hmm. And they would pick a, a mode kind of to go into. But most often it was it was freeform and, and, and ramble from one thing to another, but they could just be on stage together and really know what, without even really being able to hear each other that way, to know what the other guy was, was playing or going to play. Mm-hmm. And it w- and you could, you know, whether they were giving each other, again, the subtle clues, and we're awfully good as, as human beings at subtle clues and not even realize it. Mm-hmm. But they had, a, a, and Phil Lesh will, will talk about this as well, a, a seemingly telepathic, instantaneous communication on stage that they that they worked on over the years. And um, they, they, 
and it, but it was musical in nature. So it expressed exactly. itself musically, which was most unique, I thought. Yes, yes. Because at the time they came along, no other no other group was doing this. Every band that, that came along as a, as a rock and roll, you know, sort of a post-Beatles, inspired by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. which they all were. Yes. Um, they all did the same set every night. They would do the same, you know, 50-minute set with the same encore and say the same little funny jokes, and it was an act. Exactly, it was an act. A highly rehearsed act, and Grateful Dead just didn't do that. They did this other thing, and sometimes there would be long periods when they wouldn't play at all. They were just farting around on stage, you know, tuning or, you know, fixing something and, and talking, and, you know, and it was much more of an experience. But you could, and as far as the audience was concerned, um, they were somehow invited into this, into this ritual of, of waiting around and then, and then going on this long improvisational journey with the band. And that sort of like giving up any notion of, of knowing where it was going to go and just going along with it all um, led to a, um, a sort of a, a mind state of, of devotional, um, not bliss. Well, bliss occurred, but it was it was a sort of a, a devotional giving up of of the of the uh, filter that we normally carry around with us to, keep, to sort of keep other people out of our separate out of our space. Yeah, and so it became. Um, you know, often like a sort of like a revival meeting, you know, mm-hmm. where people were just getting transported. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 the music would stop and they would return to the room. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and just be ecstatically cheerful. Yes. And it was and 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 people would say it was sort of like church for a lot of a lot of old L S D heads. because because the some of the realms that people went to obviously had fine qualities. Yes, yes. And so once you once you sort of get into this stuff, it's hard to it's hard to shut off your expectation that you're going to go there. Mm-hmm. You know, and you want to participate, and then that anticipation uh, leads to you know anticipation and expectation get you halfway there already. Yeah, 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 yeah. And still do, you know, even in the absence of the, of the uh, whole band. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's this extraordinary, it's going back to nature, it's this extraordinary uh, natural need for community that we have that uh, uh, is, was expressed in those concerts and still is, and through this music. And it's a sharing of the feeling of awe. Beautiful. You know, this grandeur in this, this sort of miraculous transportation thing. And it's the same thing, the same joy that you feel like standing with friends watching a, a meteor shower. Yes. Or, or seeing a flock of, of exquisite birds, you know, and that, that sense of, of, you know, holding your breath there for a second. Yes, you know, yes. When something truly exquisite unfolds in front of you, some magical manifestation of, of, of our life, of nature, and our interaction with, with, our, with our environment, 
creates these moments that are just to be treasured. Carolyn, can you can you remember back uh, or or in the present? What what was your greatest moment of ecstasy in your life, or an ecstasy? Oh, gosh. Yeah. There's been so many. Or any moment of ecstasy you'd <laughs> like to describe. Um, I think uh, for me the the ecstasy has been been scattered out like daisies in a field. And I look back on them now, and the field just looks like it's full of flowers, Joanna. Mm. And I and I can't really pick one. Yeah. I think that my my highest and most happiest moments have uh, have either been with sex or with music. Yes. And I have to equate them. Um, uh, it just they, because they're very. It's just for me. It's quite similar. It's transporting, and it takes you out of the out of the. The, the ordinary into the, you know, usually rapidly fading. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, sex was a, sex was a great exploration that we all did. But, we did. Know, we did. Once, once, the frustrating, once the frustrating part was over and you knew what you were doing, mm -hmm. it, was a, it was an incredible vehicle to, for for. Um, really, co I would say cosmic exploration. Yes, yes, yes. And you go to, you know, you see the cosmos, and the, uh, it's, it's just, and and then, and but that happens the same way when the music's really good too. And I have to say that that certain kinds of drugs have taken me to pretty exquisite places. And um, but again, it's it's uh, it's we're we're blessed with this nervous system that can be manipulated in these ways. Right. You know, and I think for healthy people, it's probably easier than for people who are ill to be able to transcend. Right. You know? And I've always had superb good health. Yes, yes. And it's been easy for me to, to get excited about, about what's going on in front of me. Yes, you've been described as a force of nature. <laughs> I've, I've read that. Carolyn, tell me, um, because this is a question that I ask myself a lot. How has the LSD experience, what, uh, what, what, what fruits has it created in your life? What is, uh, how, it, how has it made you who you are today? Personally, I'm very grateful for it. Oh. Yes. Oh, my goodness. You know, my... Uh um, my 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 first LSD trip was a very long time ago, probably uh, fall of 1964, and um, I I just remember this this overwhelming gratitude mm -hmm. that somehow this 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 thing had happened, and uh, that you know this this thing was available mm -hmm. to to show us. And, oh, I wanted to go out and proselytize. I wanted to go back to my parents and convince them. <laughs> that this was a good thing, and I had built up a huge, long speech that I was going to give in public that was going to extol the virtues of, of, of taking LSD, and after a while thought better of it. But What was it? What was it? What was it? What was it that you felt on LSD oh, that made you want to say these things? The connection, feeling of deep connection with the, with the whatever this great construct is that we live in, the, the cosmic construct. Yeah. You know, the, the Indra's net, call it whatever you want. Yes. 
this thing that holds us also it also connects us in this unseen way that connects us with every other living thing and you know and then the whole all of the things that I could see about life itself that was a, a mysterious and phenomenal thing each living thing was so not only that but stretching back in time mm-hmm. you know you, you get that tremendous sense of 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 the of the depths of time mm-hmm. and and that we we float and hover, you know, at this at this far at this far place mm-hmm. of the beginning of things, mm-hmm. whatever that whatever that beginning of things was. Exactly. But you you realize that there's that there's so many more dimensions, and that's like that, that inner knowing thing again. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we used to talk about um, what the the old Norse were. For it is inkling, mm-hmm. and it, what an inkling is 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 an, a, a, an inner tinkling. You know, it's like a, a little bell that goes off in your mind that 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 tells you that you you've struck a truth. Yes. So that there's that there's a there's a truth here and a pattern of truth, and so by you know you you develop this part of your mind mm-hmm. that is that is truth-telling, that is truth-speaking and, and truth-telling like a thermometer of truth. Mm-hmm. And that is go awry, and it does for some people, and they have to readjust it from time to time. Right. But, you know, I think part of that is the expectation that they're about to discover something really extraordinary about reality. But I, really, I, I think there's reality is so extraordinary. Who, who's to disbelieve the crazy ravings of, of, of others? Yeah. You know, we don't know. We can't possibly encompass all of reality in our in our little tiny mind. I, I read recently, Joanna, that the mm-hmm. human brain mm-hmm. is the most complex structure in the known universe. How do we know that? Well, that's <laughs> by the number of connections in it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I agree. That does sound a bit preposterous. However, I've had physicists I've had physicists nod wisely and say, "Yes, that is so." Wow! And, yeah, and, yeah. And you know, these are tra- good trained minds, and they they believe that. So, by virtue of our of our neural our neural mm-hmm. complexity, yes, we're able to reflect in our own minds the complexity of the universe uh-huh. and the complexity of life itself. Yes, yes, I totally agree. And this is this is some magical stuff here. I mean, like, what's all this for? And and um, you know how fortunate that we get a chance to to look into the mirror that, that we are, you know, and, and try to make sense out of it. <sighs> Carolyn, tell me, how do you live with being both a muse? Uh, because I see, I see as a great muse, and being a creator in yourself. Um, I do it with humor as much as possible. <laughs> now, I've discovered that my own creative juice uh-huh. really doesn't flow very well if there's nobody else around. And and so you know, if I'm if I'm a creative thinker. I do my best thinking when I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. 
and everything falls into place because there's a flow, and it's flowing from me to you. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm talking to my computer, hmm, yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty dull friend. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty dull person to give your yeah, inklings it to. Doesn't, doesn't get my best material for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, but it, for me, I you know by by virtue of what we did with the acid test with Kizzy, for me it's this instantaneous thing. Mm-hmm. And, and in the, in this moment now, I can talk to you, and things all things line up and make a lot of sense. I and I'll go I'll go back to uh, reading High Times magazine here in a minute, where things look pretty stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's so wonderful that uh, I can lie here on the sofa and talk with you, and have the conversation that we'd like to have anyway, and then communicate that to people on the internet. So I just think it's absolutely beautiful. So have you thought about uh, writing an autobiography? I actually am sort of working on this right now. Uh-huh. And, um, I want to make it uh, image rich. So um, I'm sort of searching for interesting photographs from the past that mm-hmm. nobody's seen yet. Mm-hmm. I have some of my own, mm-hmm. but not a lot. Yes. Because everybody always took pictures of us, and I didn't, you know, we, we, that was hard for us to do. Yes, and of they, course. They rarely shared them with us, so um, I'm, I'm sort of looking for image, old images of acid tests and, um, you know, street demonstrations and street parties and, you know, the, go- the really goofy stuff that's... Mm-hmm. that's uh, that is so is, is so impossible to know where to look for it. But and, we, and then I yes I am I'm trying to I'm trying to get through it. The, the my speech I gave in Basel was a pretty good start. Yes, yes. And uh, I was I'm very grateful to them for asking me to write it out in advance so that they could translate it into German. German, yeah. Because uh, it gave me an opportunity to really spend some time thinking about what I was going to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that and that sort of led me by the hand into seeing what I really could do. And uh, so obviously this is what I'm, this is what I'm, um, yeah. you know, I'm so undisciplined, honest to God, Joanna, I'm terrible. Yes, and, yes. Um, <laughs> I know, I'm the same, that's why I just say yes, yes, yes. Anytime I try to set any kind of schedule for myself, the rebel comes out instantly and torpedoes that, you know. Yep, that's like when people ask me, can you send me a list of the questions you're going to ask me? And it's like, yeah. no, I can't do that. No, you're just, you know, you. not everybody can be can be a good question. Stru- structured, structured. Yeah, and do you remember a, a, a documentarian named Oriana Falaji? Yes. Now, there was a woman that could ask questions. Yes, yes. Boy. Yeah, she's... Fantastic. Yes, yes, she 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 was fantastic. Tell me a bit about your children. Well, I have I have three daughters. Yes. Um, they don't they don't like me to talk about them. Okay. And but they're they're all in their thirties, and my oldest is, is over forty now. So they're grown up women with their own lives and and pursuits and pets and homes and. Yeah, you know their own personal sets of frustrations and skills, and I am very, very proud to say they're all artists. <laughs> Great. Yes. So let, let let me ask you: Are you 
Are you angry at Jerry Garcia? Are you angry? Are you angry with him for no. for the way he uh, Yes. Well, annoyed, you know, with that, with that, but that, you know, Jerry went through so much. I mean, I can't, I can't really blame him for what happened. Uh huh. He didn't really understand what was going on. I don't think at the toward the end of his life, uh -huh. he was just looking for somebody to look after him. Mm. And um, unfortunately, it, it was uh, it was more po problematic than uh, than comforting. I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I actually I, I actually feel sorry for for the way things turned out. Mm -hmm. it, it's caused a bunch of trouble, but but at the same time, you know, conflict makes character. Mm. Speak a little more about that. Well, you, if if we just sailed along and the and the ocean was smooth and the the sky mm -hmm. was blue, we would forget how to how to protect ourselves, you know. So I think that you know, on some level, right, um, uh, some difficulty and um, you know, life not being too easy has uh, has has made us uh, better warriors, really. Right. And uh, stronger women. Well, I have this question. I'm always, um, I'm always asking myself this question. Um, is it? I mean, there are so many men, or there are some men, who are these great geniuses, but their lives are complete messes. <laughs> and uh, I'm wondering if uh, accepted, accepting that on the part of women is somewhat a patriarchal, a remnant of the patriarchal way to accept things. Yes, and I also think that men who are astounding geniuses need a lot of help, and they need support, because they could just fly off the deep end and, and disappear, you know, just as easily as somebody else. I think that men that are de very demanding of women are kind of a pain in the neck. Mm -hmm. But uh, what's the payoff, you know? And so on some level, there's a bargaining, there's a, an unspoken bargain being struck mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in couples. But I also feel that um, uh, genius in men comes at a price of... Uh, incompetence in many areas of their lives. And I'm just going to use incompetence because that, that I think, is the word that best describes what I've noticed. And, and there'll be very startling little blind spots that they have that are like Achilles' heel. Fascinating. And yes. family, you know, really, really bright people need family just as much as people who are disabled <laughs> yeah. or, or elderly. You know, we, right. all, we all need that support. Right. And if your if your blood family won't support you, or your your marital family is is sick of your act, people, right. everybody needs somebody who supports them. Yeah, yeah. and uh, even if it even if it pisses everybody else off. So do you have that in your life uh, where you live? No, no, I sure don't. I just I kind of avoid the whole question. Uh huh. I do, I do have men whose company I enjoy, mm -hmm. but I try really hard not to get into a caretaker role. Mm -hmm. Although, mm -hmm. I must say, my, my, always my, that's always my first impulse, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I have to, I have to fight it with a demon, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes. Personal demon is, I want to take care of people, and it's just like, uh, 
no, I really, I really can't do that. Right, right. It's not the right thing to do. Well, slowly we're going to bring this wonderful informal conversation around. And um, I uh, want to ask you, I mean, there are so many uh, people out there, there are so many deadheads who who have been fascinating by the music and by Jerry Garcia. Is there anything you'd like to take the chance at this moment to say to these people? Yeah. Something really from your gut. Well, I think that um, that right now, you know, on planet Earth, um, we have some opportunities now to to do some some real um, above board scientific studies using psychology with um, psychedelic substances. And I want to ask everybody to please, you know, find out what you can about these, about these new studies and, and try to shoot in some funding for this, even if it's just, you know, 50 bucks here and there. Um, the scientists who have, who have staked their lives and reputations on doing these studies under fire from the larger you know, the larger scientific world, which is still terif always terrified about losing their funding. Mm -hmm. um, they need support from the larger psychedelic community. Mm -hmm. And I, I swear to you, there is a large psychedelic community out there. Mm -hmm. And we belong to each other in a kind of a way. We have a, we have a mutual understanding. Mm -hmm. And we need to support these core research projects. It's very, very important. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually going to be spending some time over the next couple of years trying to do fundraising for some of these projects and some other things that I think are really important that have to do with cognitive cognitive processing and, and cognitive difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everything, for the, you know, the autism, Alzheimer's, um, you know, genius, genius potential people who, who can never get heard. And, and psychedelic studies are, are very, very important right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And uh, would you give us uh, a website for uh, satellite photography so that uh, other people can enjoy these uh -huh. photographs that you like? Uh, well, I, I, um, there's, there's many. And really all you have to do is Google on satellite photo. Okay. And you'll get, and then you got to go find the one for your region, because there's satellite different ones for different parts of the planet. Okay. And um, they change about every every hour or so. Yeah. And but you'll have no trouble finding them. Good. There, there's lots of different places to find them on the internet. Good. Good. Okay. <sighs> bookmark it so you can refer to it as often as you like. Right. See the weather as it approaches your location and, you know, the changes. And the, it's just, it's, it's, it's so exciting to look at a photograph of the Earth that was just taken a few minutes ago. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you very much for this conversation. Well, I'm so glad to get to know you. Let's, let's talk again really, really soon. Let's talk soon. Okay. Bye. Love you. Bye -bye. Love you too.